May I speak in the name of the one true living God, the God who is Father, Son and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Have you ever been on one of those um, training sessions or been to an event where the person at the front says, there's no such thing as a silly question? And the intention, of course, is to try and encourage people to ask questions, isn't it? But they say there's no such thing as a silly question. I fundamentally disagree. I think there are loads and loads of silly questions, and I ask most of them when I'm involved in training courses. In fact, I was leading a training course around intelligence recently, uh, and somebody put their hand up and said, is this a domestic science course where I learn how to cook an egg? Uh, and they were clearly in exactly the wrong place, so we had to deal with that quite early on. But... Um, <laughs> There are a whole host of silly questions, aren't there? For example, what's the difference between flammable and inflammable? I don't know. What's the Roman numeral for zero? Yeah, you see, you're all thinking, oh, I, I, sure, I ought to know that. Is it possible to cry underwater? Who would know? If prunes are actually dried plums. Where do we get prune juice from? <laughs> do you need to set an appointment to see a psychic? Or do they just expect you to turn up? Some questions are silly questions, aren't they? And some questions just don't seem to make much sense, especially out of context. So if I were to ask the question, uh, should I stand at silly mid-off? If you don't know anything about cricket, you're thinking, what on earth is that about? And if you do follow cricket, you're thinking, well, it depends. If it's a left hand over the wicked bowler to a right-handed batsman, no, you want to be a silly mid-on. Do you see, it's, it, unless you know the context, the question's a bit silly. Or, if I were to ask you, is your philtrum damaged? Some of you here wouldn't know whether to go and check the car or go to a doctor. And until yesterday, when I checked on Google, I didn't know either. And if you want to know afterwards what a philtrum is, I'm more than happy to show, uh, tell you, when you uh, afterwards if you really, really want to know. As we read through Paul's letter to this tiny church in Rome, that's about 2,000 years old, this letter is, we find Paul consistently asking a series of questions. We're into chapter 7 now of reading Romans, and we've, over several weeks, we've found him asking lots and lots of questions, haven't we? Loads of them. What should we say then? Shall we do this? Is this the case? Has that become this? These questions just keep coming all the way through. And if I'm entirely honest, and maybe you're with me on this, some of those questions just seem to me to be a little bit strange. I find myself thinking, well, why is he asking that? Why is he asking that at this point? Some of them might seem a little silly or irrelevant. However, the more carefully we read and study Paul, the more we, we come to appreciate that the questions he's asking in this letter are exactly the right questions. They are the right questions for him to ask, they are the right questions for us to ask, and if we're not asking them, we need to go back to Romans again and think, why is he saying that? Last week, the question which began chapter 6, if you remember, was effectively that question, if God always, always forgives us, does it really matter if we do the wrong thing? Do you remember? That was the question that we looked at at the beginning of chapter 6. And if we've never asked that question, we've never spent enough time reflecting on what being a true Christian is. Because we've either never fully understood the enormity of the grace that we looked at last week, which just keeps on forgiving, 
and the enormity, the significance of Jesus having to die on a cross to deal with our failures. This week, again, in chapter 7, there are several questions all the way through this chapter. We're not going to have time to look at all of them, but I just want to focus on one question, which is effectively the last question uh, which he asks. In chapter 7, verse 24, right at the end, you'll find it on page 1134 of the Bibles in the pews if you want to look at it, when Paul shouts out this exclamation in verse 24, what a wretched person I am. And he asks, who will rescue me from this body of death? Or who will rescue me from this um, body destined to die? Who will rescue me? Who will save me? On first glance, I would say that for some of us, that might seem like one of those silly questions. It might seem a little bit irrelevant. It might strike us that Paul's having a really bad day and he just has this outburst. Who will save me from this body of death? However, I want to argue that if we follow what Paul's saying and understand the point he's making, that question is the question, the most significant question, the question that we all ought to and need to ask, and it's a question with the most glorious and wonderful answer. In the first part of chapter 7, which we don't have time to look at in much detail, Paul continues to build on the lessons that we learned last week. Do you remember Tom? Uh, no, not you remember Tom. Of course you remember Tom. It's only a week that he's not been here. But do you remember last week when Tom was speaking? Uh, and Tom, we know and we're grateful. When you did last week, we, Tom introduced us to those three-word phrases, didn't he? Which helped us to understand what Romans 6 was about. The three-word phrases are, when we follow Jesus, we are united united to Christ, we are slaves of God, and we are free in Christ. Three word phrases that I trust we've been reflecting on and thinking this week. I know they've certainly helped me this week. When we become Christians and we're united to Christ or joined to Jesus, it's the same thing. Paul, in his writing, says united with Christ. It just means being joined to Jesus. When we're joined to Jesus, we go the way that Jesus goes. I was thinking at this point, it would have been nice if we could have got one of those, um, a big elastic band or something, and, and Lizzie and I could have been joined together and done a silly walk around the church. We didn't have time to prepare that, but that would have been funny. You didn't know I was going to plan that, did you, Lizzie? But when we're joined to Jesus, we go where Jesus goes. We, we become joined together in that way. Just as Jesus died and passed through death and came out the other side into a new kind of life, a resurrection life, it's called, when we are joined to Jesus, we also die to an old way of life and live a new kind of life, his new kind of life. That is the great news of what it means to be a Christian, that we say no and say goodbye to the old way of living and start living in not just a new way, but the new way, the way of Jesus. And James, you have nothing to worry about. I love those noises. People are making those noises when I preach all the time, Rachel, don't worry. It's great news that we are joined to Jesus. Now in chapter 7, and particularly in the latter part of chapter 7, Paul seems to address the problem, the reality that most of us face. And that is, we so often don't feel like we are living a new kind of life. Isn't that true for some of us? Maybe for all of us. When we become Christians, we don't see necessarily this massive transformation. 
particularly. Some of us here are able to put their finger on a particular time and day and date when they turned to follow Jesus and when they became a Christian. And if only we had the time, it would be fantastic to go around and get some stories of when people turned to Jesus. Some of you will know the precise day and hour. Somebody in the morning service grabbed me afterwards and told me I was nine years old, I was singing There is a Green Hill Far Away in, our, in my school, and I went home, burst into tears, and gave my life to Jesus at the age of nine. That was a wonderful... And we, some of us can pinpoint that time. Many of us can't. Many of us don't know the precise time and day that we followed Jesus. Some of us have had the privilege of being brought up in Christian homes where it's become a natural path. Some people, it's over a period of time. However it is, whether there's a particular time or not, uh, some of us, if we were to compare our life from before we were a Christian to after we were a Christian, how big is the difference? How big is the difference between those lives? Before we become a Christian, we sometimes did and said things that we didn't want to do. True, of course, we might do sometimes, when we become Christians, we might have, for example, something different to do on a Sunday. Hopefully we have a, a new friendship group. We call it a church. Maybe we get a warm glow or a fuzzy feeling sometimes when we sing some of the songs that we sing. But are we really that different when we become a Christian? Would we characterize ourselves as living the new kind of resurrection life that Jesus talks about? Does it feel that we are new creations? Does it feel like the part of us that wants to do the wrong things, which Paul has been talking about consistently for quite a few chapters, does it feel like that part of us no longer exists? Are we still tempted to be greedy, to be selfish, to behave in ways in which we shouldn't and we don't want to? In actual fact, most of us, no, all of us, when we come to follow Jesus, we begin a struggle that lasts a long time. It's a struggle about not doing the things we want to do and doing the things we don't want to do. If any of the children or young people, or in fact any of the adults, want to use the paper and pens in the pews at this point because you're thinking he is droning on and I'm bored, there's some pens and papers at the front here. It would be great if we had some pictures from some of the children and young people on one sheet of... If you had, could have the chance to do anything you want this afternoon, what would it be? Draw us a picture. What would you do if you could do anything you wanted to do this afternoon? And then on another sheet... Draws a picture of something you really, really don't want to do. If any of you feel brave enough to do that, there's some pen and some papers, and we'll have a look at those pictures afterwards if people want to do it. When we become Christians, things do change for us because we start asking ourselves the question, what would Jesus do? Do you remember there was a campaign that was really quite popular for a while with wristbands saying WWJD, what would Jesus do? And there were stickers and it's a simple but powerful way of thinking how should I act or behave in any given situation? And when we become Christians, we start to see that some of the things that we used to do, we no longer want to do. They're things that we don't like. We find that we no longer want to join in with those obscene jokes or that uh, gossip that people are engaged in or lusting after people. Before we became a Christian, these things might not have bothered us that much, but when we turn to follow Jesus, we recognize that such activities aren't what Jesus would do and aren't what Jesus wants us 
to do, and we want to try and stop them. Yet the pull and power of these activities is so strong, and we find ourselves torn, we find ourselves frustrated that we can't stop doing those things. Many of us here this morning have been following Jesus for a fair few years, and we can testify that this struggle isn't just something that happens when we first turn to follow Jesus. This goes on and on and on in our lives, doesn't it? Being a follower of Jesus means joining a struggle, a difficult struggle, a lifelong struggle, to say, no, I don't want to keep on doing that or saying that or watching that or drinking like that or whatever it might be. And instead, I want to start doing these things, the better things, the things that Jesus would do, the thing that Jesus wants me to do. In this chapter, Paul describes them. Those things that are, uh, are wrong are, are things that lead to death. They might give us a, a few moments of pleasure. They might be enjoyable for a while, but the end is death. There is no benefit to them at all. And we start that struggle of wanting to do something diff different. But it's hard. It's a struggle. And that's the struggle that Paul is talking about here in Romans chapter 7. We see those well-known phrases. And again, if, if you're anything like me, as you heard it being read and you hear phrases like, that which I do not want to do, I do. And that which I want to do, I do not do. And we see it two or three times, don't we? It sounds like, hang on a minute, slow down, slow down. What is it you're saying? That's exactly what he's saying in chapter 7. Paul has this inner desire to want to do the right thing, which all Christians have. And yet we have this constant pull to do the wrong thing. That struggle doesn't truly exist until we come to Jesus and join a church. We, yes, we might have felt regret and guilt sometimes for things that we've said or for the way that we behaved or spoke. But when we turn to Jesus, it's different. We begin to see and understand how our selfish, sinful behavior and our thinking and our attitudes, how they hurt and offend Jesus, how they anger him. When we begin to see, when we begin to see the extent of when he, what he went through on the cross, on our behalf, dying in our place, being cut off from the light and life of the Father, separated from the Spirit, for us, it's different. When we glimpse the wonderful, glorious future that He's achieved for us, it's not that we just feel a little bit sorry sometimes. No, we get frustrated, don't we? We get frustrated. We, we, we want to do what pleases Jesus. We want to follow in his footsteps. We want to love his people and to serve others. We want to stop watching those unwholesome things, saying those hurtful things, getting so angry, being self-centered, having casual relationships. But it's tough. It's very tough sometimes. We know what we want to do, but we find we can't do it. We know what we want to stop, but we keep on doing it. That is exactly what Paul is addressing in Romans chapter 7. And that's why this apparent outburst in this question in verse 24 is so important. Who will rescue me from this struggle? Who will help me out of this tension? That's what he means when he says, who will rescue me from this body of death? One translation says, I'm at the end of the rope. Is there no one who can help me? Who will set me free from this corrupt existence? Why can't I do the things I want to do, the right Jesus things? Why do I still keep doing those non-Jesus-like things? 
So even if we first heard Paul's question of verse 24 and thought it was a bit strange or irrelevant, on reflection, don't we find it's actually really, really important, really relevant to us? If we do identify with Paul's question, if he is asking the same things that we're asking, if we do find we're struggling, if we want to be more like Jesus in word and deed, but find we keep failing, then there is really, really good, good, great, exciting news. That good news is twofold. Firstly, this very struggle... The fact that we're struggling, wanting to do the right thing, but finding we can't, that very struggle proves that the Spirit of Jesus is living inside of us, prompting us to do the right thing, creating a desire in us to do what Jesus would do. Paul says, in my innermost being, I want to do the law of the Lord. That's true for all of us. All of us who have decided to follow Jesus, deep down within us, we want to please him. Because he's so wonderful, he's so glorious, he's so loving, he's so forgiving. He's done so much for us, he's promised us so much. We want to do what he wants. That desire inside of us is only there when we truly become a follower of Jesus. So this struggle is sign, it's evidence, it's proof that we are followers of Jesus. That that desire is inside of us. It sounds bizarre, doesn't it? But it's true. It sounds bizarre to say, if you're struggling, you want to do the right thing and you're failing, good news, well done. It sounds bizarre, but it's the Christian life. That's the normal for Christians. If we want to do the Jesus thing, but we're struggling, it shows we truly belong to him. And then the second bit of the good news, and there'll be a lot more on this next week, um, which uh, Matthew's going to take us through uh, chapter 8. But we see a glimpse of it there in verse 25, the last verse in our chapter in front of you, if you want to see it. There in verse 25, who will rescue me from this struggle? Who will help me in these battle and these constant failures? Thanks be to God, the answer is Jesus Christ. That's what verse 25 says, isn't it? Thanks be to God, there is an answer. Matthew will explain more of this in those wonderful terms that we look at in chapter 8. Those famous words at the beginning of chapter 8. Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. Wow, that's great news. And the rest of the chapter goes on to tell us more about the answer. And as we read the next chapter, we discover that there is a change going on in us. There is a power. There is an opportunity to be different. The answer to this struggle is not try harder. Just try harder to do the right thing. That is not the answer. That could be any other human religion. That is not the answer of Christianity. That's so harmful and hurtful. If we go away from church on a Sunday morning all we, and all we take away is I've got to try harder to do the right thing, we've missed the point. That is not the answer. The answer is in chapter 8. You're going to need to be back here next week to hear Matthew on chapter 8. You can have spoilers. You can go away and read chapter 8 and we can see about the spirit-filled life that we're invited to and all that follows, but that's chapter 8. For now, we ought to be just encouraged. If we're asking the question, is there any way out of the frustration of wanting to do the right thing and persistently doing the wrong thing, there is a glorious answer. If we've never struggled with that question, if any of us here have never struggled with that question, if that sort of approach is entirely alien to us, that is a serious problem with a simple solution. It's a serious problem because it means that if that's how you feel, you need to become a Christian. 
You need to turn to follow Jesus. You need to come and say, I'm sorry, I want to walk the Jesus way. I want to do what Jesus would do. And at that point, we become changed. We're transformed. You can do that here this very morning. And you can pinpoint the day and the hour and the month that you became a Christian. If you've never had those struggles, do that this morning before you leave. And any of us at the fund will be delighted to talk and pray with you if that's the case. But if we are struggling, if we do find that battle, wanting to do the right thing, constantly being pulled to do the wrong thing, if we sometimes come to church feeling ashamed or embarrassed, if we feel like we don't fit in here because of what we've done and because of the guilt that we feel about events in the week, if we come here thinking no one's going to want to talk to me, if people could only see who I am and what I've done, no one in church, people would shut me out of the church. If we feel like that and we're sorry for that, there is great, great news. If we want to do the Jesus thing and keep doing the Jesus thing, then Paul's question and the answer he gives us is great, great news. Be encouraged. This struggle is a sure sign that we belong to Jesus. Jesus is the answer. And his spirit living in us each and every day is the way to win that battle. Who can rescue me from this battle to do what I want and stop doing what I don't want to do is a question that can only, only be asked by a follower of Jesus. And every true follower of Jesus will ask that question at some stage. It's not a silly question. It's not an irrelevant question. We will all ask that question at some stage. So make sure you come next week for more about the answer to that question. Let's just bow our heads for a moment. We're going to sing in a moment but let's just pray before we do that God our loving gracious heavenly father thank you for Jesus thank you for his new way of life and we want to live the Jesus way so father please help us when we fail please continue to create within us each and every day a desire to do what Jesus would do and then fill us with the power to be able to do it and as we struggle and battle each day, please help us, encourage us, and help us to know your presence and to be filled with the joy of knowing that Jesus has achieved it all and that his amazing grace makes everything different. We ask this in his name. Amen.